You're listening to Fundraising Radio, a podcast about fundraising for early stage startups. The major rule that we follow here is no bullshit on this podcast. No music to relax you, no advertisements of our sponsors. We only talk about fundraising here and nothing else. So let's jump into the episode. And today's a guest speaker, we have Marsha, who has done about $5 billion in mergers and acquisitions, PE and IPO transactions. And this episode will mainly talk about talk about those M&A transactions that he has done and also the acquisition that he has gone through personally. So Mars, let's kick off by you giving us some background on yourself and on right clean. Yeah, sure. So Constantine, very nice to, to meet you and nice to meet the audience, obviously, virtually right now. But uh, so a little bit of my background, I worked in M&A for the first about six years of my career working at JP Morgan. Then I worked at a boutique investment bank, focusing on middle market transactions. After that, I got this really cool and exciting opportunity at this company called FS Investments. I was one of the first employees there, um, and we experienced some you know, tremendous amount of growth. We were able to successfully IPO, and I was able to work on that IPO with the CEO and, and our head of corporate development. So that was a, an awesome experience. Since then, I've been on the operating route, you know, either as an operator or entrepreneur, one of the companies that I was an early, essentially founder at was a company called Ride Clean. You know, we were able to grow that company from a brick and mortar car wash to a SaaS technology platform, and our core sector was in auto. So we ended up creating a SaaS product that allowed fleet managers to keep a track of all their inventory. We went through multiple rounds of fundraising. You know, grew the company, um, and then successfully sold it to Cox Automotive. So a lot of what I did was I used a lot of what I learned in my banking days to really help and navigate fundraising and then really help and navigate the transaction Cox Automotive. So just taking those past experiences and then bringing them to life in a more operating scenario. Nice, nice. And first of all, congrats on the Right Clean thing. It was a great story. And let's start with that story, Right Clean. So how did the acquisition happen? Did you actually plan to to sell that company or did you just get an email saying like hey man we want to acquire your company yeah it's a it's an interesting question right so anytime you know you are an entrepreneur or founder or you acquire a company the goal is usually you have to provide some kind of return to the investor that invested in you so we had investors that invested in ride clean from early on and you know our goal is as operators we have fiduciary responsibility to provide a return so we never thought about full exit strategy, but it was always in the back of our mind. And if we found a selective buyer, you know, strategically, we'd navigate that. So we, you know, we were working with Enterprise, we were working with Cardigo, we were working with all these big car sharing companies. We never had Cox Automotive come into the play. We always thought we would probably sell to Enterprise or one of our, our biggest customers. So we were one just positioning it to really grow with our customers and then to be operationally and financially ready if something were to happen down the road so the biggest thing we did was just clean up the process really clean up our numbers and make it so if any buyer was interested in looking at us we appear to be a fortune 500 company or institutionally driven so when you pop under when you pop open the hood and look under the hood you'll see that it's it's a clean shop clean company the books are clean you know there's not much in terms of extra diligence that you would have to do. So Cox Automotive, you know, that came out of the blue, but it was always, you know, if all these car sharing companies were interested in us, I'm sure there's other 
strategic players in the automotive space that was interested. So we just reached out to Cox and trying to work with them on some technology development and strategic development. And you know, after that happened, they became interested in us. And it was a, a long process as it always is with any kind of institutional or strategic buyer. It was almost a year long process. Um, a few times the deal went, you know, it went under and it didn't go through, but then it came back towards the end and we were able to successfully close. Nice, nice. That's really, that's a cool story. So in terms of, and we'll get back a little bit later to, you know, looking at five, four and 500 companies and you know, making sure your books are clean, probably not in depth in this episode, but a little bit. Uh, so which stage of the company can expect to get acquired? So, you know, the minimum is like probably 500,000 uh, annual mm -hmm. recurring revenue. Is that the stage, right? Are there any other prerequisites to be expecting the acquisition or at least like the offer that might kick off the process? Yeah, there's no, to be honest, there's no real prerequisites. When a company, when a buyer is looking to acquire a company, it's a couple of different things they're looking at. One is, do I just want to acquire the technology or the IP? That would be considered an asset sale. Do I want to acquire the whole infrastructure and the operations and the company and the equity that would be considered an equity sale? And the last piece that is tied to an asset sale is do I want to just acquire, you know, if Constantine started an amazing idea, but he hasn't been revenue generating yet, do I want to just acquire Constantine to run that for, for my organization? So that's called an acquire. So it's never, there's no real prerequisites to MA. It's just what the interested buyer is looking for. What the downside is when you sell too early is you don't get the valuation that you want because you don't have enough room or leverage to negotiate your enterprise value and your sale to the buyer. So that's the downside about selling too early that I've always seen in all the M&A work that I've done. Absolutely, and actually about that, I just had an episode about a guy getting acquired by Lyft in like less than a year after the founding date. And there mm -hmm. we talked a lot about like, you know, what's the problem with this early acquisition. He was happy at the end. So <laughs> that, that's a happy story. But if someone's curious, just go down like a couple episodes. The title is Acquired by Lyft, I think. <laughs> I didn't get to crave there. Uh, but and the other thing that people don't really tell you is, you know, let's say Lyft acquires your, your other speakers, a company, and they say, we want to acquire you for $20 million. You're not getting $20 million in cash up front. You're getting a yep. percentage of cash at closing and the rest is via an earnout. The earnout typically means that that person now has to go work for Lyft for a few years because now it's if you hit certain milestones, if you hit certain uh, guardrails, then those earnouts you know true up and you actually get the, that, that capital right. and that money. So everybody doesn't know that in terms of an M&A or, or acquisition. <laughs> Right. I mean, the title acquired for 20 million sounds much better than acquired for 5 million and 50 million in earnouts. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> because people will be like, what the is an earnout? <laughs> but let's talk about your, about Right Clean again in terms of earlier stages of it. So you've done, as you said, multiple rounds of fundraising. I'm curious if you could go back in time to this, you know, very first time that you started even thinking about raising money, what would you change? What would you do differently in that process? Yeah, I've, I've learned so much in just fundraising. It really is just the narrative, right? You have to have a right pitch, a right growth vision of the company, and you have to sell the idea and the team. It varies for early stage companies, right? Early stage companies, you don't have much to sell, especially if you're a first time entrepreneur or founder. So you're really just selling you know, the vision, you're selling the idea, you're selling you know, the long-term growth to the company. 
if you're a second or third time entrepreneur, investors are going to back you sooner because you've done it before, right? You've already set a precedent, you have a track record. So it's a, from an investor standpoint, they're de-risking and they can actually invest in you because you know, they know you've done something before in the past. Um, you know, one of the biggest things I learned when I was first fundraising is I used a lot of what I learned from my banking days. I created something called an offer process letter. An offer process letter means you just highlight a high level timeline of what you want the investor to be involved in. So for example, if I was pitching to Constantine's fund and it was August 7th as it is today, I would say, look, August 7th, I've created some investment materials, Constantine. What I'll do is I'll share something called an investment teaser, where it's a few page document that gives you high level what my company does. Within a week or so, you know, let us know if you're interested. If not, you know, no problem. If you are, I'd want to get into an NDA and then have you sign an NDA. Within two weeks after the investment teaser, I give you my whole investment deck and I start to give you access to my data room. So the data room is essentially a Dropbox folder or a Google Drive folder that has your financials, your, your legal, your articles of incorporation, your client data, your management background teams data. So now if we assume, you know, we're at August 21st. Now uh, two weeks after that, if the buyer's interested, I want any kind of IOI, which is an indication of terms. I want that from the buyer to let me know what they're looking to invest and then how much they're looking to invest. So if all things go aligned, you know, the whole process should take you anywhere from four to six weeks and you'll know if the buyer is interested or not. But this is all highlighted in that offer process letter. And what this does, it creates demand. You're creating demand from investors and you're saying, you know, you're creating that FOMO effect. Don't miss out on this opportunity because if not, I have other investors lined up. Obviously you play this by ear with, you know, selective and strategic investors that are big time investors that you want to have in the round, but this has always worked for me. And, you know, it, it really streamlines the process and, and it makes it more efficient. Right, right. So here we're moving on back to the M&A uh, and it's going to be more about your previous background. So you've done nearly $5 billion in those transactions. What's your major takeaway from, from, the, from that experience? M&A is hard. People think M&A works most of the time. Statistically, if you look at it, M&A doesn't work because the last piece is the integration side. Right. Right? Integration, culturally, acquiring a new company, acquiring a new team, that's why it doesn't work. The numbers, the technology, all that can, can be looked at at paper and worked out. But the cultural side is usually what tears up M&A. Um, you know, but aside from that, you know, M&A, I would say, you know, everything I've done and, and what I've learned out of it is there are really good ways to look at M&A. If you're a company that's constantly doing M&A and you figure out a process, how to evaluate targets, how to evaluate companies, those are the ones who end up being the better M&A organizations versus companies who are doing first time M&A or second time M&A. So if you're an organization that plans to do a lot of transactions in that sense, have a process built out, look at adjacent markets, know what you're getting yourself into and have the right team and the right corporate development function to build out that function for you. Nice, nice. That's actually true. I have not taken a look at the statistics of the M&A transactions after they happen, but that sounds real. That sounds like, I mean, integrating two different teams into one is super tough. Uh, but what's the major mistake that you've seen founders making? So maybe founders 
often tend to ignore what investment bankers tell them to do, or maybe they are trying to get themselves too good of a deal, which is impossible and screw up the whole deal. Or what's that major problem that you've seen with founders? Yeah, what founders and operators don't realize is, and I've been on both sides from the operator hat and the, the investor or banker hat, right? They're, investors always care about just de-risking and minimizing their risk. So if you're a founder and operator and you run things smoothly, you have clean numbers, you have a clean process, you have a clean data room, chances are you'll give the investor or banker reassurance. So that's what you want to do in that whole M&A process is just have as many streamlined functions, as many streamlined books, the um, accounting, the finance cleanup, have all that done well. And if you need an audit, obviously make sure you're, you're done in filing annual audits, but anything to do that can give an investor or banker reassurance that you have a clean organization, a well-run organization, um, you know, that's what you want to do is give those folks reassurance. I can give you some really, really crazy examples of, of an MA transaction I worked on. There's one transaction where we were close to getting over the finish line and within, you know, us actually signing the, the, the purchase agreement, the founder says, you know, Mars, I just want to give you a quick update. I'm getting a divorce. And, you know, the divorce has been filed and, and we're going to be processing in, in the next two weeks. And I'm like, you know what? This completely changes a lot of things that we just talked about for the last five months. And now we have to give the buyer an update and saying, you know, this individual is getting a divorce. So it just you lose credibility with the buyer if you're not honest and transparent from the beginning. And it just shows, okay, if this guy is lying about this, what else is he lying about now? So you don't want to lose credibility and to build credibility from the beginning, run a transparent and clean process. Most definitely. And, you know, most of my listeners are those early stage founders. So they're in their pre-seed slash seed stages. So they're not really close to M&A yet. <laughs> but what's your advice to them? Should they start preparing? You know, should they start taking care of their accounting and making sure that it looks clean or should they just you know, whatever and uh, once the M&A day comes in they'll just hire an accountant and that they are clean they're going to clean up the whole thing i mean i'm a finance and numbers guy so i'm, I'm going to always be biased towards having clean numbers and, and clean data but not just from an M&A perspective right if you have clean numbers if you have clean metrics clean kpis you can actually use that data to make decisions that's the goal of this, right? The goal is to use data to make good decisions, to make good operational decisions on growth strategy, you know, capital deployment, expense deployment, whatever it is. That's what you want to use the data for. The, the M&A part that comes down the road is just icing on the cake because you have clean numbers and a clean process. Right, right. Yeah, that's true. I, I mean, I'm a finance guy too, so we're both biased here. Uh, but I believe that, you know, clean data is definitely something super helpful. It's just so much easier to analyze the whole system, see where where you lose money and uh, cut that part out. Um, and for early stage founders, they shouldn't be looking at eminent. If To answer that question bluntly, it'll just come organically. And mm -hmm. once you start getting traction, people will know who you are. People will know what your idea is. People will know the buyers will come to you. You don't have to ever go source them once you've got good traction. Right, right, right. So um, I one of my questions was going to be like, have you seen any like royal screw-ups from the founder's perspective in terms of their M&A actions? But you kind of already answered that with a story about the guy who didn't tell about the divorce. But have you seen any founders doing like extremely well? Have they, I know, is there some story as good as the guy with the divorce, but on the positive side? Yeah, 
One one of the transactions I worked on, it was an insurance company, and they essentially acquired this CEO, uh, really sharp guy, and they acquired him and acquired his technology. But the main reason is they wanted him, and now he's one of their, you know, I think he's co-head or or co-chief of their digital transformation function. So it worked out in the positive for them, is they weren't really looking to acquire that technology; they wanted to acquire him. Right, and with him now, now they're building out other ways to commercialize their company and other new ideas. So that was one of the few instances I've seen it work. If you look at, I believe, Mark Lore with Jet.com, you know, he was he pretty much built Jet.com to be acquired by Walmart. And he said, I wanted Walmart to acquire me so I can be, you know, the head of online commerce and the head of online business, the CEO of that business. So he built Jet.com. He said early days to be acquired by Walmart. He wanted to run, run walmart.com. <laughs> That's really cool, actually. Uh, and soon I'm interviewing a guy who was acquired by Chegg. So that's <laughs> that's pretty ironic. But let's move on to the topic of, uh, you know, current situation in terms of early stage founders. So what's your advice to those people who just think of starting fundraising now during this coronavirus? Is there something specific you would recommend them like maybe they should wait for more months or should they you know just ignore fundraising and try to get some more revenue in or what's the advice yeah fundraising i i've learned over the years you don't need to do it if you can prove a, a profitable business model right fundraising shouldn't equal success fundraising should just allow you to expedite growth so if you're profitable and you're like you know what now i want to reinvest my profit margin back into my top line growth. And that's why I need fundraising. That's the great, that's the right approach and the right way to think about it. And fundraising now has also changed where there's a lot of different debt players out there too. You don't have to just go get equity financing. The cost of equity financing is expensive. So why not you know, use a hybrid model and go after some debt and equity as well. Um, in terms of private capital being out there, there's still a lot of money out there. That hasn't changed. There hasn't been a downturn in that, but investors are more selective on the companies that they're investing into now right so they're the initially when coronavirus started they were just investing into a lot of their portfolio companies and giving them more capital just to make sure they have cushion and they weren't looking at startups or new ideas but that i've seen that change over the last you know call it four to six weeks where they're starting to reinvest back into new ideas so if you're a founder looking to get you know institutional capital or even strategic angel capital Really show them what you're about and show them and say, look, here's how I navigated COVID. Here's what happened early on when COVID started and here's where I am today. They want to see that resilient story. They want to see how you've adapted. Have you started the beta test new ideas or new product ideas that are on the horizon now? So show that adaptability, show that relentlessness and show them that you're still willing to grow and build your business. And that should be an easier way for you to get capital. Right, yeah, that's definitely a nice approach, you know, to say, show up how you react into coronavirus. It's nice, nice idea. Uh, so another question is, do you know some specific class of investors who are like being specifically active right now? So maybe it's angel investors, VCs, corporate venture capitalists, you know, uh, nonprofits, or is there some specific class that you would recommend founders to go to to target right now? Yeah. There's the, across the fundraising landscape, right? You have your, your VCs, you have your corporate VCs, you have your strategic angels. Uh, once you become a mature company, you have private equity. The one vertical that's really expanded over the last few years is family offices. So family offices, if you look at them, 
they're all ex operators who've built some kind of wealth and now for wealth additional wealth generation they're starting to invest in mature companies and now they've come to invest in earlier stage startups and created their own VC funds so that's one area to really go target is family offices and they're deploying a lot of capital into the early stage world because they know the returns are there and they're all ex entrepreneurs or operators so they want to take more hands-on roles and they can be more strategic in helping you with the company as opposed to just the VC who is just there for capital deployment. So that's one really vertical to target is that family office space. Right, that's good advice. And yeah, family offices grew dramatically. So that's that's a nice idea. Um, so here we're moving on to the last question of today's episode, which is a call to action. So what's that one thing that you would recommend the listener to do as soon as the episode is over? Soon as the episode is over, it, it depends you know, what you're trying to do. If you are a startup founder who's just looking to raise money, create a 100-day plan, right? In your 100-day plan, really map out what you want to do from a fundraising standpoint, an operational standpoint, a product and tech standpoint, and then the last piece, the human capital standpoint. So if you were to go out and, and get this money, what would you do to deploy this money? Where are those proceeds going to go? Is it you know, 30% in tech, 20% in SG&A marketing, another 20% in hiring, and the remaining is just for internal growth metrics. Um, so really start to map that out over a 100-day plan and a detailed 100-day plan and project timeline. So now, if you go out and raise money, investors can say, okay, here's what you've done during COVID. Here's your detailed, you know, mapped out 100-day plan if you plan to fundraise, and how can you bridge that gap? That's what you want to try to do. Nice, that's a great call to action might take you a few hours but <laughs> take your time no rush here i mean coronavirus here still staying at home come on um so that's a good call to action my call to action will be um go to the description of this episode first of all i'm going to leave a link to the video recording of this episode so it's like fourth episode that we're doing on video and audio as well so cool. take a look at it uh and also i will leave a link to that episode about the guy getting acquired by lyft within a year so if you're curious to hear you know what happens when you get such a quick acquisition by such a big firm definitely take a look at that as well so we're going to wrap it up here have a great day everyone